and welcome to Women Who Protect, a monthly series as part of the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We will hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and also seek their advice for women and girls who might be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, as the chief research psychologist at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field. And I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing with you the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to consider joining our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Monica Duperon Rodriguez is a security leader with over 30 years of experience in corporate security, protective services, private investigations, and law enforcement. She's an expert in the development and execution of security plans and operations designed to minimize exposure to liability while protecting valuable human capital, equipment, resources, and facilities in both civil and government agencies and in national and international forums. She's fully bilingual in English and Spanish, as well as intermediate and French. She has a diverse background in law enforcement as well, having worked on the Human Trafficking Task Force, Gang Task Force, and DEA Task Force, as well as serving as an undercover narcotics detective, a field training officer, and a SWAT hostage negotiator. Currently, she works as the Senior Manager of Global Security and Risk Management at LinkedIn. Monica, welcome to Women Who Protect. It's a delight to have you with us, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start out from the beginning, just going through your your bio, your LinkedIn profile. You have had some fascinating positions in different law enforcement agencies and uh, in executive protection um, and different corporate security positions now with LinkedIn. Can you just... Started at the beginning. How did you get into law enforcement in the first place? It's a really g- good question. Um, so I was working as a facilities manager at a recreation center, and the police would come by on a regular basis just to check on us. And um, I was constantly being asked to apply for the police department because they really needed a female. They needed somebody who spoke Spanish. And, um, and I already got along really well with all of the police officers in the, in, in my town. So, um, I, I kept saying no until one day, one of the police officers came to my office and put an application on my desk and said, just give it a try. You'll go to the Academy. Um, you can start off as a reserve officer. And if you like it, then you can transition to a full-time police officer. And I thought, you know, why not? I'll give it a shot. And that is how I got into police, uh, into law enforcement. So tell me a bit, what is the um, the difference between reserve officer and police officer? Because I think especially as we're, um, you know, helping to provide information for women and girls who might consider careers in security and law enforcement, I think that'd be helpful for them to know. So what's the difference there? So uh, I believe every city, county agency kind of defines it a little bit differently, but you're, you're essentially um, a part-time police officer with arrest powers, or you can also be a reserve officer, which is you're, you're volunteering. So you're the one that does all the crossings and you, um, you help with, uh, you know, like baseball games at the public park so that nobody gets into fights and, and you just do those types of, um, of assignments. Um, and then if you decide that you really want to, uh, pursue law enforcement, that's a great way to get started because it really gives you an insight of what it's really like to be in law enforcement. You have to do reports. Um, you can go and ride alongs with the, with the full-time police officers, 
Uh, and then a part time as a part time police officer, um, you you work approximately thirty hours. You you don't make a lot of money, but it allows you to um, again learn what the job is entails. Um, and a lot of uh, retired police officers will actually go from being a full time police officer to a reserve police officer just so they can maintain their certification in law enforcement. That's fascinating to hear because I think it it provides a way to get to know what policing could be like without making an entire commitment right off the bat of, okay, yeah, I want to transition from whatever my non-policing career is into policing, not knowing yet what it's like. So I, I, I think that's a, it's an intriguing option. So you started as a reserve officer and then actually became a full-time police officer with city of Clearwater and then with Pasco Sheriff's office. Tell me what the, what's like, because just reading through again, your, your LinkedIn bio, you've, you've had fascinating roles in, in each of those positions and, and as a SWAT negotiator, investigator, field training officer, detective, tell me a bit about what that, those experiences were like. Well, I, I, I think I tend to be very ambitious. Um, and when I was going through my orientation at the Clearwater Police Department, we had our intelligence sergeant come up and do a presentation on what it was to be part of the intelligence unit um, as a detective. And I started asking a lot of questions because it, it was very interesting to me, um, you know, the whole in intel portion of law enforcement and detective work. Um, and so I started asking a lot of questions. And then when he finished answering all my questions, I, I basically said, I'm going to be part of your team soon. <laughs> um, he laughed. He said he really admired that ambition. And I went off to the road, um, you know, and I did, I did, um, you know, just at least uh, uh, work, community work. Um, I was one of the few Spanish speaking police officers with the Clearwater Police Department. So um, I, I did a lot of work with gangs and then eventually started migrating my way into doing uh, human trafficking investigations where I was afforded the opportunity to work closely with um, with Homeland Security, with the uh, Department of Justice, with the FBI, uh, DEA. Um, so I, I even had the opportunity to work with the Department of Social Security and Investigations or something like that. I can't remember the exact um, title, but um, learning about all of those things was extremely interesting as well. Um, so that's that's how I started to really gain my experience um, as an investigator and then ultimately did end up working as a human trafficking investigator within the intelligence unit. So I had met my goal um, and um, I then wanted to continue to learn and really expand on my experience. So I, I tried out for the um, hostage negotiator position. Um, they already had one female on the team. And uh, during my interview, I, I emphasized how if they ever have a situation with a Spanish speaker, I would be able to assist with that, that negotiation. And we had a large Spanish speaking community. Um, so that along with actually going through the, the tryout process, because the human or the hostage negotiations team was an element of the SWAT team. So I had to do um, the qualifications just as anybody else would. And then, um, kind of showcase how I can communicate. Um, and then, you know, happily I made the team and it, it literally turned into one of the best assignments, um, and the most fulfilling, um, job that I was able to, to do within law enforcement. Do you have any um, any particular situations that you were involved in uh, as a hostage negotiator or part of the the SWAT team that that are that's memorable for you? There's many. Um, there are many of those situations that are memorable, but I can tell you a funny one. Please. 
<laughs> I, I always uh, go to the funny stories because they're a little bit more lighthearted and um, not so not such downers. Um, I was called to, it wasn't my turn. So we have two females. It wasn't my turn to be on call. It was the other female. Um, but she was unable to go to this particular um, call out. So I get called out. I get there. And there is a naked man in a tree who has a warrant and will not come down. And <laughs> they wouldn't tase him because, it, you know, there's liability with that. He could hit mm -hmm. his head. He could get hurt. So we can't do that. Um, he showed aggression. So we couldn't necessarily, we, we couldn't just jump, you know, climb the tree and, and help him down. Um, because that, that wasn't going to turn into a good situation for both the officer or the, the naked man. Um, so while I'm negotiating with him, trying to get him to come down, um, he eventually said, the only way I'm going to come down is if you agree to go on a date with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, let me just, before you go to the rest of the story, had this situation or possibility been covered in your hostage negotiation training at this point? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, no, it had never been covered. I wasn't really sure. I mean, he really threw me off balance when he said that. And I wasn't even sure what was appropriate for me to say. Um, and of course, because it was kind of a situation where nobody's really in harm's way, we're just a little frustrated because we just need him to come down safely. It was starting to get cold. And I know it's, it was in Florida um, in winter. It actually does get cold sometimes at night and he's naked. Um, so I, we, we knew he was eventually going to get tired, hungry, or he was just going to get really cold. Um, but everybody started laughing and, um, and I, I was looking to one of my supervisors and asking what, what do I do? And he's like, just agree. I'm like, I can't just agree. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> That's going to set the wrong precedence. And what if he comes after me when he gets out? Exactly. I, I don't even know. You know, I just, I, I didn't really know how to properly respond, but at the same time, I knew I had to say something. So, um, I, I basically went back and said, look, if you come down, I promise you that I will be the one to take you to jail and I will stay with you until you get into, you know, get put into a cell and get booked. Um, and then eventually he, he agreed and came down the tree and, and everything was resolved without incident. And I didn't have to go on a date with him. Well, and, and you could have counted that escorting him to jail as, as the actual date. I feel yes, like you found yeah. a, a wonderful, a wonderful <laughs> solution to this, to this immediate situation. Yeah. He got to spend a little bit more time with me. So there, there he was. Um, just another question on, on your experience as a hostage negotiator. You talked about being one of two women on the team. Did you see that there was any particular skill set that women brought to that position that, that may have differentiated them from, from your male colleagues? I think the biggest thing that we were able to bring um, was organization, not just, you know, um, organization in the sense of you know, we have all of this equipment and we needed to make sure that everything was logged and you know everything was in its proper place because in an emergency you want to make sure that you always know where that particular item is going to be um and the other thing is we just have a very different approach in the way that we speak and so um if we needed a situation or we needed someone who could be very strong, forceful, came across as an alpha, you know, we would utilize one of the, one, one of the men, but there were certain situations where, um, that just didn't work because all that was doing was making the other person more agitated and their, you know, stress level was, was elevated. And, putting a female on the phone to negotiate with, um, with an, you know, either a hostage taker or someone who's trying to take their life. Um, we just have a, a, a calmer, um, 
I think it's it's just the way that we speak is is a little bit more calming for some individuals. And so we we have to capitalize that on that when we identify that that individual may relate a little bit better with a female's voice. Um, and so that was something that we brought to the table, uh, just a different perspective in the way that we dealt with things, you know, a little bit softer, but yet still forceful. Um, and we still got the job done. It's just done differently. It's fascinating to hear you describe it that way, because in my time with the U.S. Secret Service and, and then also in, in all the work I've done in behavioral threat assessment since then, I, I've actually found... A, women to be particularly skilled at that intervention piece of threat assessment, which is, um, you know, getting someone to move away from plans of violence, feeling they have to resort to violence or suicide and and helping them onto a better path, um, finding ways to sort of solve those underlying problems. And it's tough because on the one hand, I'm, I'm reluctant to flag it as a, a gender difference. But I do know that some of the most gifted threat assessors I have worked with over the past 25, 28 years are women. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so it, it, it's as a woman, I, I'm, I feel like I'm challenged because I don't want to say, you know, women are better at, at this because, but, but the reality is, as you've described, we've seen the same thing in, in executive protection in some scenarios that, that just women can be a better match for certain situations, depending on the nature of what you are trying to de-escalate or who you're trying to protect. So it's fascinating to hear, hear your experience as well. Yes, I, I, I 100% agree with that. And I, I find myself also, um, you know, kind of shying away from saying this is what we're better at. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, having those skills of maintaining a soft tone, regardless of how agitated you may get or how stressed you may get. And, and even if somebody else is yelling at you, if you still maintain that same tone, they're bound to, they're, they're going to bring their tone down, their, their voice down, um, because they want to be able to hear you as well. Um, and, and they kind of feel like, okay, I'm going to have to bring it down a a couple of notches And and that can be learned. Um, but it, I think women just naturally have that skill. So Monica, to that point, we, um, my colleagues and I worked on a, a, a threat case to a high profile individual a number of years ago involving a, a woman who had engaged in progressively concerning pursuit behavior, but, but sort of started out as a, as a fan, as an admirer. And she started to send gifts and then she started to, to show up places. And, and then she actually was able to sort of con her way through security looking and, and was able to attend some private events where this person was speaking. And, um, we opened up a, a threat assessment case on her, found out she had a weapon, she was suicidal. Um, and our normal, operations at that point that the people we had who were most experienced in doing that that threat management piece to de-escalate and work directly with her were men but our normal strategies weren't working and so we finally kind of went back to the drawing board and and realized there was something in her history where she had been she had been abused physically and sexually by step parents um and and had also uh um, had another experience where she had been abused by a male in position of power over her. And so we did a, a swap to involve females to do the threat management piece, the intervention piece, work directly with her. They had far less experience, but it was just even just that that gender swap because she felt less threatened by and more inclined to cooperate with women than she did with men. And so even in that moment, we think about a strengths-based approach to a lot of this, but oftentimes it really comes down to, would a woman be a better match for this situation to to accomplish our goal of of de-escalation and intervention? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, when, when we're talking about threat management, we really have to look at our resources and allocate the right resources to the situation because of what the situation is. And, and, you know, and then pivot and change it up if it's not working. And that's exactly what you guys did. Um, 
And sometimes it does mean that we might have to go to somebody who's less experienced, but may still be able to get, you know, a little bit further ahead than, than we would if we just stuck to the original plan. So I, I love that you guys did that. Yeah, and, and, and you can provide coaching from the side, but, um, you know, there's certainly been situations where I get so frustrated dealing with a particular person. I'm not going to be good in that situation. Like, okay, right. we need to swap someone else out who, who hasn't, hasn't had, isn't bringing this sort of history of, of experience here. And I've actually run into that in human trafficking investigations where we have a suspect or, you know, an arrestee, and then we have the victim and the victims tend to open up more. Um, with a female, even if it's a female advocate, um, the advocate can actually get a lot more information than, you know, having a man in the room and, and trying as, as nice as he may be. Um, it, he, she's just not going to open up on the other end. Um, when you have a suspect who is engaged in that level of activity, especially when it involves children, um, I actually experienced that a lot of our male investigators did not want to go into the same room to talk to that suspect because they, they allowed a lot of their personal feelings get in the way. And, um, you know, they would specifically say, I cannot go in that room. That man will not be alive if I, if, if I go in that room. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so they would, they would, they would literally take a back seat and say, no, I, I can do it from back here because if I go in that room, it's just not going to be a pretty, pretty sight. And in that particular case, um, they would, they would put me in there, uh, to talk to the subject and, um, try to obtain as much information as possible from that particular person. Because, you know, when you're talking about human trafficking, you're talking about rings, uh, you're talking about multiple people, that actually engage in this type of activity. And you want to get as many of that as possible off the street. And you also want to get to the highest level as possible, kind of like you do with narcotics, right? Or even um, illegal trades of guns. You want to get to the, to the top um, so that you can try to knock it out from, from a higher level to try to minimize the impact on the community and to minimize the, you know, the number of victims. Um, and because of my hostage negotiation skills that I had learned, I was able to kind of remove my own personal feelings from that interview with those people, you know, with the suspects and, you know, kind of show them that I, I have respect for them and, and get as much information as I could, even though I, I really didn't. And then, you know, mm -hmm. I hated every aspect of what they did and, um, and, and just having to be in that room to talk to them. But it, that was effective for, for those type of investigations as well, which is kind of interesting because, you know, it, 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 there were definitely situations where some of our male investigators just did not want to be in that room. Well, and, and I think actually, you know, credit to them for identifying that they would not have interviewed as effectively in that situation because they were bringing, you know, would have had a personal reaction. But the way you're describing about interviewing is is so important to be able to just continue to collect information without disclosing what your own personal reaction may be for as long as you can to get as much information as you can. And and to your point, you may have to do something, you know, significant, extreme, whatever, as soon as you leave that interview room, but in the moment to be able to stay as neutral as possible, I think is a, a really important skill to have. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> so tell me, several years in law enforcement, various positions, and then you decided to get into, was it executive protection and then, and then corporate security? What did you do after law enforcement? Executive protection. So that's, that's a pretty interesting story as well. It, it wasn't a conscious decision on my end to go into executive protection. And, and actually, I didn't know anything about executive protection. I didn't realize that that was a profession that I could go into. But it, what I didn't know is that I had already been doing it. I had already been doing it. <laughs> I just didn't know what it was. I was uh, still in the uh, uh, human trafficking task force, and part of that was to um, 
you know, really establish uh, relationships between the, the community and law enforcement. And um, I ended up uh, partnering with a church that did a lot of anti-human trafficking investigations on their own and, um, you know, recovery type of um, practices. <laughs> so they would actually do search and rescues, um, which was very interesting to me, you know, that it was a church. And so I partnered with them and I ended up having the opportunity for several years to travel with church members and the lead pastor to other parts of the world um, where human trafficking is, is prevalent and also where a lot of the victims in the United States were coming from. And our objective was to educate local law enforcement on on human trafficking, not that they didn't know, but how to combat it. Um, and also what they could do to protect their, their people, their population and, and show them that we had an interest in, in their livelihood and also the livelihood of, of their people. Um, and so because I was able to do that, I met a lot of, um, former law enforcement, retired law enforcement and, and also had the opportunity to teach at a local um, a law enforcement agency, or I'm sorry, academy, let's say. Um, so I was able to teach at an academy to over 400 women on what it's like to be a woman in law enforcement, um, and then also defensive tactics, uh, which was great. But in that process, I met someone who was a retired police officer who had his own security company. And I came back from that thinking it was a great experience. Um, and several months later, I, I was um, asked by that particular uh, retired police officer to forward him my resume. And I honestly thought it was just a another um, mission trip with another church or something of that nature. So I, I was happy to send him my resume. Mm -hmm. And then several months later, um, I get a phone call that they want to interview me and they flew to, Cal to um, Clearwater to interview me. And then ultimately they flew me to meet with a client who ultimately ended up saying, I need a female to travel with me. And I wanted to be a female who has law enforcement or military and is bilingual. Um, who's not like, uh, it's not obvious that you're a security or EP or law enforcement. And so when they met me, um, they thought I was very unassuming and, and then I demonstrated some of my skills and ended up getting a job offer to be, uh, executive protection for that family. Um, and then, and basically they ended up the conversation with what do we have to do to get you to come work for us? Nice. And I said, give me two weeks, <laughs> give me two weeks and I'm here. And that's how I ended up doing executive protection. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I want to tell you a little about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. In a world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in the security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse, and alternative analysis for some of the industry's top practitioners. Define blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Can I ask just for, for those listening who don't necessarily know what executive protection is, what, what is it and what does it involve? So executive protection is uh, the protection of individuals um, typically high net worth individuals, um, corporate executives, 
Uh, it could also involve pastors. It could involve uh, celebrities. Um, some people would describe it as bodyguard, but it's not necessarily because we do so much more. We're not just there to protect the physical body of the individual. Um, we're, we're protecting their brand. We're protecting their name. So we do, we have to do a lot of research. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of logistics that go into protecting an individual. Um, so, and that's essentially what executive protection is. And you've been doing executive protection in some capacity ever since. Is that correct? Ever since leaving law enforcement? Yes, I have been. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about women in positions of executive protection. The, again, sort of the, the skill sets they may bring. Um, and, and especially as you were describing it, that part of your interview for what you didn't realize you were <laughs> a job that you were being considered for um, included the fact that that you you didn't stand out as as an obvious bodyguard. So tell me a bit about about that and why that may be helpful. What I have found through the years in doing executive protection, and also you know once I got into corporate. Um, there's a lot of uh, high net worth individuals or um, high net worth, high profile families and executives who want to have that level of security and protection, but they don't necessarily want it to be obvious. So what they opt to do is they opt to hire executive protection specialists who blend in with the rest of their entourage. So you can, as a woman, you can blend in and you appear to be an executive assistant or a personal assistant. You appear to be someone that simply works for that individual, but nobody will really identify you as, um, you know, as a protector. And I think that that it's interesting because again, in, in some of the, the, work I've done over the years, we've had to create protective details for, um, high profile individuals who are in college settings, for example, and, and looking for someone who looks like they blend in with the environment is, it can be particularly helpful so that you are actually providing protection, but at the same time, it doesn't look like a, an obvious bodyguard configuration. And, and at least as I've seen it, can be helpful to let the the protectee or the principal, the person you are providing safety and protection for, to interact as normally as possible within their day to day environment, but at the same time having that that resource there if needed for safety for security. You know there are certain situations where you want your security to be obvious and and it, that it's clear that you have security. But in, in the majority of, of uh, jobs that I've done or uh, assignments that I've done, um, it, it was extremely important to not have that, you know, that level of presence because it calls attention to the group or to the individual that you're trying to protect. And so you're trying to keep it as normal as possible, which is why that works really well in college settings for some of those high net worth um, college students who need to have that level of protection, but don't necessarily want to have that huge person, you know, next to them constantly at every turn um, because it makes it uncomfortable for them, but it also makes it really obvious and it makes them a target. And that's what you're trying to prevent. Um, and I want to circle back for a second because you also were talking about how executive protection professionals not only help provide physical protection, but also help protect the brand or reputation. I'd love to hear more about how that's accomplished. I believe that most people in executive protection or corporate security, um, if I was to say pie in the face, Typically, they know exactly what you're talking to, uh, talking about or referring to. And for those who don't know, many years ago, um, Bill Gates was walking up a, some a stair, some stairs, and he had his protection his protection detail. Um, but someone was able to kind of break through that and put a, a pie in his face, um, which was 
very embarrassing. Um, and to this day, still something that many people can refer to as an embarrassing moment. Um, so protecting the person, the brand, or their reputation involves trying to limit those type of, or prevent those type of, you know, acts against the individual, but also when they go to client, uh, let's say for example, they're going up on stage and, um, you don't want them to trip and fall on a cord, uh, or a step because then it's going to be captured on camera. Uh, you know, people are taking photographs and those are embarrassing moments. Um, so we try to prevent those, um, those type of activities or those things from happening. Um, another thing would be just, uh, you know, if somebody posts something that is negative about the individual that we're protecting and, you know, analyzing the situation as to how badly that's going to affect the individual. Is it going to affect the company they work with? Is it going to affect their stock, um, which essentially ends up affecting the board members, um, and then it also affects all of the employees at the company because they all have stock in the company. Uh, so there's this huge spiral, uh, you know, cause and effect, um, that we're trying to prevent. So if we prevent it on the front end, we don't have to worry about, um, you know, all of that other stuff. So we, um, we have to prepare for a lot of those things and taking those things into considerations. And it's almost like, you know, if, if, if you've ever had a child, or took care of a child, you have a one-year-old, you're always trying to figure out, okay, what else is this person going to get into, or this baby going to get into that I need to prevent, you know, uh, uh, putting locks on the, the, the cabinet doors and putting little protectors on the outlets and making sure the corners are rounded and they're not sharp. So we have to have that a similar mentality when we're planning all of these activities with our, our, our clients um, to make sure that they're protected um, only at a much grander scale because we we have a lot of different types of threats that could affect this individual uh, and so we we have to have that level of mindset to really think and strategize and go through every possible <laughs> scenario and and then put a plan in action so that you can mitigate as much of that risk as possible if that makes any sense. That is a wonderful analogy. And, and I have to tell you that when our daughter, who's now 15, was first starting to, to walk and run around and, and I'd have her in, in any sort of, you know, in a store, uh, on a sidewalk, I literally was recalling like the, the strategies from that I learned at the Secret Service in terms of a protective detail of not letting anyone get between me and her. And and just would sort of think through those, like that as as a mother, you think through those things and to hear you make that translation to, to executive protection is really important to think through all the things that could possibly go wrong and what can you do in advance to to reduce that risk um, so that you're not trying to do the the, you know, catch up, clean up after the fact. I think that's a, a great analogy. One more question on, on executive protection, then I want to pivot just for a bit. How much in your various executive protection roles have you cooperated with directly with the person that you are protecting? Is this something that, that you provide an external structure and, and knowing what they want to do? Or, or do you involve them in pre-planning and, and strategy? How, how do you approach that? So that it. There is an approach to that, and that um, requires not going into all of the granular details of your plan or why you're doing it, um, but it does require kind of an overview on why and what you're doing and how it helps them. And if you can just do those three bullet points, what you're doing, how you're going to do it, and why it's important, then they have a better understanding and they don't question you as much because they, because you were able to have that conversation that, with them ahead of time. And so anytime that you do something, you know, you've already prepped them. If I, if I nudge you, um, then it means we need to go this way because something's coming that I feel 
may be harmful to you. Or um, if you, you know, tug your ear or scratch your head, I know that you're uncomfortable talking to this individual. And I, you know, can then come by and say, um, we're running late for our next meeting, we got to go. Um, and so having that level of communication with the person that you're protecting um, really helps things flow easily. And it, they're, it's extremely important too, because when something serious does happen, they won't, they won't even, they won't even question it. As soon as you say, let's go, they're going, they're not going to question you. They're not going to say, but I'm in the middle of the meeting. They're not going to say, I, you know, I'm on a call. They're just going to go. So it's extremely important to have those conversations with your client. Um, but there are different levels in executive protection that you have the leads um, and it depends on what, you're, what we're talking about, too. So if we're talking about a, a security company that is been contract, has been contracted to provide that executive protection, then it's up to the company when they're in those negotiations with the person that is contracting them or the client um, to really explain, you know, what our objective is as a protector, as in, in what kind, you know, the level of skills that we're going to be providing with our people and what they're going to be doing. Um, so that person is the one that's com communicating with the client. Now the client may be different than the person you're protecting. So the person that ends up being face-to-face -face with that, with the protectee, um, they should have a similar conversation with that person because it's not guaranteed that the client is going to communicate all of that information to the protectee. And then you have other levels. Um, you have somebody who does the driving. You have the, what we call halls and walls, which basically you, if you're at a hotel, you're going to, you know, basically sit or stand in a hallway um, for several hours just to monitor the traffic in that hallway because that's where your client's staying or your, your protectee. Um, your protectee could be a child and they might not understand everything that you're trying to do. So you have to explain that to a nanny. Uh, so there's, there's so many different levels of uh, protection. Um, and then the different types of people that you would communicate your plans to, to make sure that, you know, everything goes smoothly. So Essentially, at the end of the day, the person that you're going to be with, your protectee and, and the executive protection lead or point person that is directly with that protectee should have that communication with them. It's helpful to hear that because I think it, it, that working in, in executive protection, working in threat assessment, that I hear professionals challenged all the time, how much do I disclose to a protectee? And, and the way you've described it is actually so helpful to think about. It depends on the role, it depends on the level, and also depends on, uh, you know, as how much information a protectee may want or not want about what's going on. Um, you know, especially the sort of why we're doing things a certain way. If there's a particular threat, there are protectees who don't want to know. They just want to know that you're doing what needs to be done to keep them safe. Um, others want feel like that the more they know, the more they can be an active participant in their own safety. So I think it, it absolutely depends. What are your thoughts on how we can encourage more women, more young women, more girls to consider and get into security positions, law enforcement positions, just to join us in this field? Great question. I think one of the things that um, really motivates me in, you know, speaking in these type of, you know, platforms such as this um, on your podcast is to get the word out. Um, if you consider the way that I got into uh, executive protection, I didn't even know it existed. Um, and, you know, when you get to mid law enforcement career, you start thinking about what am I going to do when I retire? Like, I don't even know what my world would be like without having a gun on my head. <laughs> and sometimes it can be, it, it can be a, a scary thought because you don't know what your skills transition to. And one of the things that people don't understand is that even though you're in law enforcement, you have a lot of transferable skills. Y even if you're in the military, you have transferable transferable skills that apply and can be used when you're when you're transitioning into executive protection or or corporate security. 
But the biggest thing is getting the word out to as many women out there who are in the military, who are law enforcement, EMTs, nurses, uh, they can all transition into this field. Um, They just have to know what skills they have and how they transfer over into that field because they'll, they'll be surprised if you do two columns of what your skills are in, in your field, let's say law enforcement, like it was for me. And then executive protection. If you start going piece by piece on all of my skills and how they transfer over the majority of my skills did, they're just being utilized in a different way. And so educating more women on how to do that and, and really identifying whether or not that's something that they'd really be interested in, you know, encourage them to go to a class so that they can, you know, kind of see what kind of things there are taught in an executive protection training course. Um, But that's not the end all either. Um, You still have to continue to learn. And one of those, a really good way to learn more about the profession is to network with people who are already in that profession. I think that's so smart because it gives you a chance to talk to individuals one-on-one or trade emails and just ask some questions about, okay, I know I can, I can understand, you know, from a a vacancy announcement, what, what a certain position may require, but what's it really like day to day and what are the good things about it? What are the, the challenges about it? What are the, you know, things that you, you couldn't stand once you actually were in the position? All of that's really helpful to to make a much more informed decision about is this something I even want to want to consider. So understanding how um, how other businesses or industries work outside of law enforcement is going to be extremely important. And then you know educating yourself on what it really entails because I think a lot of times some people get into executive protection and they have a a perception of what it's going to be like and it's their perception of what it's like is is a little skewed um and then they become very disappointed because it's not the way that they expected it to be um so it's very important for them to educate themselves so that they properly can come in with the right expectations one of my um, Secret Service colleagues used to field questions all the time from people who thought they wanted to be to apply to become a special agent, and and her advice would be, okay, before you even apply, um, go stand outside your you know your apartment building or on the corner you know the the corner in, in fr- near your house for twelve hours, and then go out and do it again in the rain, and and if you're okay doing that, then then you can you know, you. you will survive the worst of what it's like for, as you were talking about the halls and walls aspects of executive protection and, and, and like, okay, so, so, but, but a great, no, a great way to kind of think about, okay, you are going to have to do this as part of your job. And there's a lot of other aspects that may be far more rewarding or gratifying or challenging, but if you can survive the part that's going to be the most boring, perhaps, um, and then then okay, you're well on your way. So then go ahead and apply, and you know what you're getting in for. Um, but I think it's really important too that the asp that the idea of this doesn't have to be it doesn't necessarily have to be a long term commitment. You can you can try law enforcement, and if it's not for you, then you can transition to another position within security. Even a couple of years of law enforcement experience would be helpful foundation to have to bring to a security position. You can try a couple of years in security and decide to do law enforcement or decide to get out entirely, and you'll still be bringing more skills to whatever your next thing will be. And so I think it I used to see so many people just dedicate full careers to whatever law enforcement agency and and then try to think about what they're going to do next. But in the past few years, I've seen a lot more turnover in people doing shorter positions with agencies and security positions, having more variety, but ultimately staying in the field for, for an entire career. And, you know, that's, that's, um, you know, for anybody out there that's looking for a job um, or considering a career in law enforcement, that's one of the biggest benefits of being in law enforcement is there's so many different ways that you can continue to be in law enforcement, but not necessarily be, you know, in a car writing tickets. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Exactly. But you can apply that same 
the the same thing through executive protection. You can you can go work for a celebrity, um, and many of them will you know have different types of schedules. They're always on the go. They you know they might start at four o'clock in the morning and not get in until one o'clock in the morning the next day. But if you're okay with that, that may be for you. There's faith based. There's corporate. And then there's high network individuals. And then you have um, one thing that we haven't touched on is we we often have royals from the Middle East that come into the United States. They hire executive protection in that particular aspect, um, case. They, they specifically will require uh, female executive protection because of their culture. Um, a woman can be with the, their women can only be with women. So they'll come in, hire, you know, several executive protection specialists, and then they will go from here and travel to other parts of the world and then come back and then they say goodbye and then they go home. Uh, So there's all of these different avenues that you can take within executive protection. And if you don't like one, you can try the other and you can try the next one. And, you know, until you find what your niche is and you, you find the one that you're really good at and you find the one um, that you really enjoy and you like, and it's not, you know, terrible to thinking that, oh man, I got to go back on this detail. Um, so when you get to the point where you really enjoy what you're doing, you found your niche, you found your place. Now you just then start trying to build on your skill set so that you can continue to grow within that lane of executive protection. That is such excellent guidance. And and actually I'm inspired to <laughs> go back and start my career over again. I want to do it again. <laughs> Monica Dubron Rodriguez, thank you so much for sharing your history, your stories, your advice. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm I'm just delighted that you were able to join us and and I truly thank you for for all the information you shared here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.